Our roles are somewhat different. Basically, we all have an interest in, in one thing, which is making this company have a big impact on the world and make the world a better place. And so it's a partnership. Hi, I'm Aaron Levy, and I have this crazy vision of a workplace where your manager doesn't suck, where instead of being the reason you quit your job is actually the reason you stay, where your manager is your coach, helping you to reach your full potential at work. I founded Raise the Bar, wrote Open, Honest, and Direct, and started this podcast to help companies transform their workplace by creating an environment where both the company and employee succeeds. In this podcast, I get to interview leaders who built high-performing teams and learn from them on what it takes to unlock their team's potential. Today, I'm lucky to have Bracken Darrell, the president and CEO of Logitech. In the eight years under Bracken's leadership, he has transformed Logitech and their stock price has octupled. Yes, octupled. That's 8x growth. But in our conversation, Bracken doesn't talk about stock price or profits or even revenue. Instead, he shares the importance of the two-person team of giving power and autonomy to make data-driven decisions to the people on the ground level closest to that decision, and about what's possible when we all align to a singular problem. It's a really powerful and meaningful conversation. I know you'll enjoy. Welcome on, Bracken. It's a pleasure to have you. Excited to hear your leadership journey. Well, it's terrific to be here. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited to do this. We're talking in, you know, depending where you are in the world, week four, or week five of the recession and the quarantine that are, that's happening. And, and I just look back to your time at Whirlpool and how yeah. you kind of were able to guide your team and the organization through it. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought up Whirlpool because I actually landed at Whirlpool right after they had a weekend, the leadership team there at the Whirlpool had a, had a sweaty nervous weekend in a closed room trying to figure out how to survive, you know, because they had a commercial paper dried up and any other company was totally financially sound, but they were accessing the commercial paper markets. And if you know anything about that, that was a source of liquidity, which means a source of basic cash. And it went away for so many companies, including them, but they, they managed through it beautifully, but I didn't get, it wasn't inflicted on me. So I landed right after that. And, uh, and so I didn't have to wrestle with that in directly with that crisis. I kind of came in when it was on its way back up. Ooh, you got in at the right time. I've been lucky all my life. I was lucky there. When we, when we first spoke via email, you mentioned the leadership well is so deep and it never ends. Well, I think, you know, you, you just never stop learning about how to get things that are worth doing done. You know, mainly it's about enabling other people, but some of it's about doing stuff yourself. And, you know, I just, you know, it's like so many uh, ac- academic topics, practical topics too. You can never really be finished. You're never complete. And the world's changing around you all the time so fast that even if you did think, gosh, I've kind of got this thing, it would be changed, you know, <laughs> in, in a very short period of time. So you just can't be done. You're never done. And I'm learning so much. I'm, 57, I'm 57 years old. I've learned more in the last, you know, couple of years about leadership than I think I learned in the last 15 or 20. What's one of the most interesting things that you've learned in the last couple of years? Well, you know, some of these are going to be you know, kind of obvious to your listeners, but, you know, one of them for, for me in particular was I realized that running an organization, in my case, it's a company, but it could be a, a very small group, could be anything, 
is much more of a partnership than leading a, a military, you know, formation or something. You know, you're really about just having partners and each partner in the group, like a part, like a, almost like a legal partnership or a consulting partnership. Each partner has a responsibility to do something and you're all connected by the fact that you're part of that partnership and you're part of the mission of the overall firm. But at the end of the day, you know, you just have, if you're, if you happen to be the one that's officially in charge, it just means you have different uh, decisions to do than the other people. And it, it reminded me of something that goes all the way back to when I was 18. And I was, uh, I was elected student body president of my high school in Owensboro, Kentucky. And the student body president, you know, basically presided over the student council. And the student council was 24 people. And so I was super excited. I had a lot of things. I was on a mission. You know, I wanted to make big things happen for the school and everything else. And I quickly realized that only about four or five people did all the work. I mean, everybody would come to the meetings and, and some people would participate. But in terms of really getting things done, it was four or five people. And I was like, man, I mean, this is really frustrating. You know, they were elected. Or we were all elected by popularity contest. And so a lot of them, you know, no, no fault of theirs. They just weren't really interested in getting something done. And so I thought, man, I can't wait till one day when I'm working in the real world and people are actually paid to do the job. They'll all come, you know, hungry and inspired to make things happen. And so I waited for that day, you know, and then one day I woke up and I was 26 years old. And then I had that moment and I realized, oh, my gosh, it's always the same, you know. You still, you always have to inspire those people. It was my fault that I didn't get those other, you know, those other 19 people inspired in my student council 20. And it's my job now to inspire these people about what we're doing, whatever it is. And I, and it, it just really hit me like a ton of bricks. You're always running an all volunteer army and you ought to act like mm -hmm. it. Sometimes. So it kind of reminded me of today. Now I've taken it to this, well, the platform I'm in now, which is, you know, Logitech, this company. And I realized that the, you know, I've got 21 direct reports or something 20, or a lot. And I realized, you know, this is just another one. These are, we're all partners. So it's one step up from this volunteer army. We're actually general partners in a, in a company. We all have the best interest in it being successful. Everybody does. Everybody's, our roles are somewhat different. Basically, we all have an interest in, in one thing, which is making this company have a big impact on the world and make the world a better place. And so it's a partnership. And so that, I mean, that's an amazing and powerful kind of view of work to hold. And yet so many of us, come into work and view it as our company is trying to take something from us or get as much out of us as they can. And, and I'm guessing not everyone on your team um, maybe originally came from that perspective or had that experience. How do you help your team hold that view and vision of, of how work should be? I'm probably not a very good manager or a very good coach. You know, I, I say that, and, you know, I, I don't get a lot of disagreement from my director board, so, so I'm guessing I'm right. What I am okay at is leading by example. I don't have standard meetings where I meet with each one of them for an hour a week and then, you know, and tell them what I think they should be doing. And I have a, a whole, it's a very heterogeneous process for me. Some people I do meet with every week, you know, and some people I meet with at lunch, you know, back when we we're actually in the same place. Uh, I meet them for lunch and some, some people I run into in the hallway and some people drop by my desk and, and, uh, and some meetings are two hours and some meetings are five minutes. And so it's a very, it's very much like a partnership probably is that we do have partnership meetings. We have one every week, you know, which is to update each other on what's gone wrong basically. And then we get out of that after an hour and 15 minutes because nobody wants to hear anymore about what's going wrong and we go work on the problems. So I try to lead by example. And then I do talk about it some, you know, I, I've evolved my definition of partnership to something else, Aaron, which is 
in that general partnership model, you might think of that as a, as whatever, a, a, a 21 person team. Uh, and it is, you know, but, it, but then, then that makes me think about teams. And so it made me think about teams. And so I grew up uh, playing a lot of basketball and I always thought about five person teams or whatever your bench was included, 10 person teams. And then I thought, well, so what's the best team? And then I, as, I've, as I've been in this job, I've really noticed that small teams are better. You know, small teams are always better. They get more done. They're faster. They're quicker. They're more flexible. And I was trying to think, why is that? You know, it's, is it, it's kind of obvious, but it's kind of not. Why is a small team so much better? I see, I see now small teams get things done that like thousand person divisions of big companies aren't doing. And, that, and I was trying to figure out why. And if you want me to finish that story, I will. <laughs> Please keep going. Don't stop. Okay. Well, well, so I, I had this, this light that went on. I went to meet with a guy who was an expert on teams and we were talking about team size and he was agreeing that small teams are good. And for some reason during that conversation, this light went on for me, which was, I thought about basketball. I thought about coming down the court with four other people there and you're dribbling and you're fast breaking and you can kind of see one person out of one corner of your eye and the other person out of the other corner and two of them are right in front of you. And, and so that's a team. That's five fluid people moving together, you know, and, and kind of knowing each other and knowing where, where each other are. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. That's the wrong way to look at it. It's not a five-person team. There's no such thing as a five-person team. The only team there is is two people because there's me and Aaron on this call. Okay, that's obviously for this call, for this, this discussion, we are a two-person team. But actually on a basketball court, you're just a collection of of, of, of two-person teams. So if I look over at Stephen Curry, for that moment when I glance over there, I have all the knowledge and trust in him that I had before, and he has it in me. And I'm thinking about him, and he's thinking about me, and, I'm, and I might pass it to him, I might not. But we're a two-person team in that moment. And he's a two-person team with me, and I'm a two-person team with him. But he's also a two-person team with Durant, who's under the basket. And when he's looking at me, he's also glancing at that other team member. And he's, in, he's got two different teams going. And I have two different teams going. I have four different teams going. And he has four different teams going if he's good. So if you think about that and you extrapolate the way we work, all teams are just collections. They're just uh, collections of two-person teams. And so if you put the emphasis on that, it changes everything. How does that change the way in which you set up or operate? Well, I have a lot of one-on-one meetings a lot more than I ever did. And I do that because it's so important that you and the other person have trust, that you have uh, knowledge of kind of uh, normal behaviors of how you communicate. You need a, a level just like Curry needs to have a level with me of, of almost being able to predict what I'm going to say. So we can get past that very quickly and get on to what matters, which is what's unpredictable, what's uncertain. So having a lot of one-on-one meetings is part of it. A second part of it is uh, realizing that when you're in a meeting with a lot of people, you're not in a meeting with a lot of people. You're in a meeting, a, a one-on-one meeting with a lot of individuals. And, they, and ironically, I think uh, the Zoom experience or Teams experience or uh, Google Hangouts experience you're having now from your couch or desk or whatever, where you're in a group call and you're actually on with six other people. This is actually a great depiction of this because in a way you can see that you're having a one-on-one discussion with each one of those. They're reacting to you or they're not. And, and yet you're in a, a group meeting. And I think that, that is a, it's, a, it's a great kind of metaphor and visual illustration of what I'm talking about. Once you realize that, you, you start to say, okay, who's not engaged in this meeting? And why aren't they? 
you also can say to yourself, uh, the the nice thing is you can stop being biased towards the one or two team members, your, your, the, the pairs that you, you tend to over rely on. You can start to catch yourself. You know, I used to have a, I have a staff meeting and my, my CFO would always sit right across from me. And those are like, you know, I'm sure that some of the staff thought of those as decision-making or power spots. And so I'm sure I looked over at my CFO too often or at my head of design too often when a question came up or a discussion topic was happening. Now you can't. And so that bias is removed. And so I think about all those things now when I'm in the middle of a team dynamic or a meeting. You know, what would click for me is you talked about that and even just the visual of like a Zoom room with all the faces and, and you said trust and be able to connect and Right. And what I'm taking away from this is we've got to remember that everybody's an individual, that yes, it, the collective makes up a larger organization. But what you're telling me is I need to be able to connect with trust, feel safe with each individual on the team, because if I'm not, then all these many teams, we have one or two are that are broken. It's so true. And one or two, if you think about all the teams you've ever been on, they've all been dominated by a few. All the teams are dominated by a few people. By definition, you're not getting as much out of some. So your job is to eliminate that problem. That's where this pairs concept, a larger than two-person team is just a uh, multiple of the pairs that are really made up of, of the pairs that are the teams. And once and that registers for you, it's a, it's a game changer. And that's even, that's even more important now with teams operating with less people, teams operating with less resources, more constraints, less time, more uncertainty to dig down and make each team as impactful and as productive as possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, and I think the other reality is I've, I've realized that, you know, the, actually the more people you have involved in something, generally speaking, if you treat it like the old fashioned team, um, the, the speed and quality of the output is inversely proportional to the number of people working on it. And I know that's a generalization. It's not totally right, but there's things you need lots of people working on. But for the most part, you know, you're so much better with small teams. And, you know, I always say, you know, your, your, your IQ goes down when you, when you go beyond two people. You know, it's like your collective IQ really starts to drop. And when you have three people in a meeting, somebody's, out, somebody's an audience all the time. That, I'm just going to repeat that when you have three people in a meeting, there's, someone's always an audience. Really connects back to this idea of teams of two people. Um, yeah. or collections of two people because it, it's, it's, it's acknowledging the fact that not everyone's in, involved and so inherently it's not as efficient as it could be. No, and if you think about all the great things that happen in the world, of course there are more two-person teams than there are three or more. But if you just think about the amazing things that happen in this world, you go just start with Apple. You know, you got Steve Jobs and Wozniak, right? That's pretty impressive. And you've got Jonathan Ive and Steve Jobs. You've got Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. Those are three different teams, all that kind of operate. Some sequence, some operate at the same time, some not. But, you know, there are lots of two-person teams that really made such a difference just within Apple. And I think if you just go through, you look at the Wright brothers, you could go through uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey and her business partner. You go through them, there's so many amazing things that are happening but from two-person teams. I think there's enough evidence there to say that two-person teams are really uh, a super, elite, super powerful concept. And the more you can default them, the better. It's so interesting coming this, this, this idea coming from you because you run a company that has thousands of people. You know, the obvious question is now, okay, great. Two-person teams sounds great, but how do you extrapolate that to an organization of thousands that has people around the globe? And 
Like, how does that work? Well, it, it, it comes back to one thing. We're not a, we're not a company of, of, you know, of 5,000, 6,000 people. We're a company of 5,000 individuals. And those individuals each have teams, two-person teams in their lives. They, have two, they often have a two-person team at home, you know, their spouse or their girlfriend or boyfriend. Or they have, have two-person teams in their work. And, and it's usually somebody they work with a lot. And some of those two-person teams function really well. Some don't. And I think being deliberate about who are the who are the people who really are my partners in my in my life, in my career. It's an explicit decision to make that I'm going to invest in those teams because they really make a difference in, in the quality of my life and my ability to make an impact. How does that impact the decisions that you make and have to make on a daily basis? Well, it's. Uh, I, I'm not sure if, this, if I can link this directly to that, but I, I think of my role as, uh, and you know, this is going to sound really strange, but I think of my role as being the least data-driven role in the company um, because I'm at the, uh, you know, I don't make decisions that I shouldn't be making. I try not to. So the decisions that, that a decision should be made closer to the problem where you have the sufficient information to make it. And, de- and de- decisions should be data-driven when, humanly possible because usually, you know, people were too biased to make decisions without data. So we usually make much better decisions with good data. So the data, the data is usually owned by people closer and closer to, in in many cases, the customer, in some cases, the supplier, in some cases, our cost structure, whatever it is. So those decisions should all be made pretty far from me. Where I get involved is usually where the decisions, the data is not, not, it's not, obvious. So somebody's got to make a decision with limited data or with a lot less data or even with no real data. So it ends up being a judgment call. And that judgment call is based on either history or intuition or, or, or principles, business principles, moral principles, ethical principles. So the decisions that I get involved with are, are generally not, are, 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 are for the most part judgments and, uh, and so that's a very interesting dynamic. And what that means is, flipping that around and answering your question, it means that, that I give a lot of latitude to the people who work for me to make decisions. And I hope they're doing that for their people. Like the phrase, the, the idea that comes is like, instead of as a CEO of, of thousands of individuals, you don't actually hold power. What I'm hearing you say is you give power to each individual to make the decisions that need to be made. Yeah, and I have decisions to make too because I have to, I have a job to do that has real work in it. But that's exactly right. I always say, at least to myself, I'm not sure I've ever said it really publicly. I don't run this company. This company runs, and and if I do my job right, this company runs really well. I don't, you know, I don't need to run the company and tell people what to do. It's one of those where uh, we often think that being a leader means having all the answers but the best leaders don't have all the answers <laughs> and, and, and nobody has all like, the answers yeah. and nobody has all the answers and you're kind of like living, showing proof. And since you've been on the, I mean, the company has continued to thrive and I think it was doubled, quadrupled um, since you've actually, been there. So actually t- today it's sec- it's octupled in eight years. Octupled yeah, in it's eight a, years. In value. It's a, it's eight, it's worth eight times more than when I started and that is a direct reflection of the fact that we have a lot of people in the game. You know, a lot of people really in the game make a difference. I was reflecting on just my leadership team, the people that I work around the most. And I, I, was, I was thinking about, 
just right now, and I've got people who've been with me from a lot, they've been with the company longer than I have, more than eight years. I've got people who've been with me, you know, a very brief period of time. And I look at the growth spurt they're in right now. And it is, Aaron, it is remarkable. I mean, and, you know, you talk about constraints and the impact they have on people. I've never seen people grow as fast as during this uh, pandemic. I have several people, I would just say, have gone, have, you know, there's a great, uh, a great Vladimir Lenin quote. You know, I'm not a big advocate of his politics, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> a, but I am an advocate for this quote. He says something like, uh, there are decades where, where almost nothing happens, and then there are, there are weeks where decades happen. And I feel like we're in one of those from a personal growth standpoint. Some people are just going through a growth spurt that is unbelievable, and I see it. It's, it's like I'm seeing it on my team. It's so exciting. What, what are you seeing or, or you, what do you, what does your intuition tell you is driving that growth spurt in some? I think it's, it's what you started with. You said, you know, constraints, you know, uh, the more you constrain something, you know, I had a boss guy, Mike Weggy, who maybe I'll forward this to him when it comes out. So he knows I, I mentioned to him. He, Mike said to me one time, we were talking about creativity. He said, you know, if you say to me, you know, uh, think of something original, a creative thought. My mind is a blank. If you, if you put a little tiny box around something and say, be creative in there, tell me how a matchstick could change the world. I can get really creative. And I think that that's what's happening right now. This pandemic is constraining you physically. It's constraining our businesses. It's constraining our strategies. It's constraining our uh, operations. It's constraining our, our, phys- our, our behaviors. It blocks out things that were possible yesterday. It's one massive multicellular constraint. But the result of that is, if you apply yourself, it's potentially the most creative opportunity you've ever had. And you can think right into all those things and think, what can I do now? What new opportunity do I have? It's a horrible thing. I mean, this pandemic is a horrible thing. But inside those horrible things, there's always a silver lining. What's one other silver lining that comes to your mind from this? Well, I think we're all discovering, you know, that, wow, it's kind of remarkable how much you can get done remotely, you know, like... uh, like physically remotely and 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 this silver lining just has pages and pages of opportunity i mean so once you realize that oh my gosh i can actually sitting at my desk in my house or i can talk to other people sitting at their desks in their houses and and we can actually work pretty well together we can drive less we can get a lot done maybe as much or even more than we did before not every job everywhere but a lot of jobs and guess what you know the the air pollution goes down the impact of the environment's better you know, so I'd say this idea that, oh my gosh, you know, we actually can do this. And, and the secondary piece of that is, look how fast we did it. We did this in such a remarkable pace. Now, take that same principle that we did, we did something that people would have said was impossible. We put the whole world, our, our, you know, 50% of the world in their homes and made them work, even though it was impossible before. And they're doing okay. Now, take that same principle and say, what if we said, you know what, it's just as urgent. It's just not as obvious. We have to do this with the environment. We have one month to figure this out. How do we drop global warming to the floor? We have one month. It's so, it, to me, it's, it's exciting because you have this realization, holy cow, look what humanity can do if we have to. And so how do we apply the same urgency to the other problems that are out there? Fairness, you know, bias, prejudice. How do we eliminate the, the fact that, that a, a school kid in inner city Chicago or inner city Boston or any inner city Owensboro, Kentucky, where I grew up, doesn't have the same funding level per student as, as a student in Palo Alto High School. How do we change that dynamic 
and take advantage of the fact that, you know what, distance learning actually can work. And that can unlock a whole new way of looking at, the, at that problem. How do, we, how do we put constraints and urgency around these problems? Yeah, that's the challenge. How do you light a fire under them? But look what we did in such a short period. Imagine if we could do that as a globe. I, mean, I feel like uh, I feel like the other Lennon, you know, John Lennon. Imagine, but imagine <laughs> what we could do if we really did operate with that level of global, even a better level of global coordination against a problem like global warming. It's just it's incredible how resilient people are. We don't yeah. necessarily give ourselves enough credit for how damn resilient we are uh, when You're put right. into a corner or tough situation. Right when when constrained. It's when we come up with some of the most beautiful, thought-provoking, powerful change and creativity. It's really true. You know, it's, a, it's amazing how, how simple things are when you, when you really get to the root of them and how complex they look from afar, you know, when you don't understand them. And I think the more you constrain things, the more you're in a box where you can really understand it. You know, the, more, the smaller your playing field, the more you can really understand it. And then you get down to what is really simple about it. It's so true. It clarifies, it removes the noise. If anything's not a priority in a constrained situation, that goes away. Certainly true for all of us now. Every company, every individual right now who's sitting in a, a shelter, their sheltered place, you know, either feeling down or depressed or, or feeling excited and of the opportunity or just glad to be home for a while. I think all of us who are in this situation, we certainly have a moment where you have to say, this can't be different. It can't be the same on the other side of this. So that means the foundation on which I built our strategy, our vision, my life won't be the same on the other side of this. In some way, it's going to be different. So it invites you to reassess your vision and strategy for your company, your function, your business, your business within a business, your, your, your whole life. You know, it's an invitation to go look at it really rigorously and maybe start over again and build it from the ground up. And you might end up in a pretty close to the same place, but boy, none of us do that often enough. So this is a great time to do it. And the other part of that is change is scary. It is. Things that are different and people that are different are scary. Inherently change then becomes scary because it's different from what, what we're comfortable with. How do you support your group of individuals and your community through that change? I think it is scary. You know, it's really scary to be that off balance where you wake up one morning and so much seems different and you were so familiar with what it was before and now you're suddenly in unfamiliar territory in so many different ways. And I think the, the, the best way to help remove um, or help manage fear is first of all, you've got to acknowledge it, you know, in yourself and those around you, you know, and, and especially where not only fear, but misery, you know, I had, uh, I, very early in this, I don't remember exactly when, it was the first week of working from home. I was actually, in a, you can tell I'm, uh, I'm a completely over-the-top optimist, but I had a moment where I was sitting by myself at my, at my kitchen table, and I just started to cry. And I, and I, I, I thought, why, why in the world am I crying? And I thought, I'm crying because I can, it's the first time I, it really registered for me all the suffering, all the incredible suffering that is about to happen. Like a, a really, a really dark moment for me. And I don't have dark moments. You know, the only dark moments I have is when I turn off the lights at night and I'm about to fall asleep. And I sleep very well. So I had this incredibly dark moment. And I, and I, and I sat there and it lasted about an hour for many people it last weeks and months. So I'm lucky. But I had this moment of, and, and you know, it was really good for me to face right into that. And, uh, and I think all of us on some level have to face into the fact, the, the, this feeling. 
So you have to acknowledge your feelings. And I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I know you need to acknowledge them and let them in. And then the next thing I think that I try to do is say, okay, now let's stop spending our time. Now that we've, 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 we've soaked that in, it's in there. You can't get it out. It's still there. Now that you've soaked that in a little bit and you've acknowledged it, you can deal with it. Now let's focus on what good can we make come out of this? And if I can put, you know, of my effort on how to turn this thing that has the potential to be so dark into something good, it suddenly puts me back in control again. And what what I felt when I was familiar with my drive to work, with how I worked, with the people who stood on the left and the right of me or sat on the left and the right of me in the office, what's so difficult about the unfamiliarity of the new that we're experiencing now is that you feel out of control. So if you can get control by saying, okay, now how can we build a plan to get the most out of this? It puts people back in control. So that's what we're trying to do at Logitech. I love that. And, and it's, it's a great way to talk about it because the truth is it just made us aware to the fact that we weren't in control and we're truly never in control of all of our environment and circumstances. But, but what you're saying is it, it, that kind of finally hits you. Um, yes. And the only thing you can do is control how you act. Right. And so exactly. when, you say, when you say, what good can we make of it? It's like, what can I control is how I show up and how I approach the future of these situations. And that's, yeah. that's all you can ever control. But in times like this, it's what you, as you said, I love how you said it. It's like, acknowledge it, let it in. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't try and fight it. And then come from a place of what good can you do? And that good can be on the smallest scale or on the largest scale. It can be anything. You know, we all have some, some things that we can focus on and, and feel like we can accomplish or at least try to accomplish. I go back to the one per, the two-person teams, right? It can be on yep. the smallest scale. As, uh, you're, you're always working on two-person teams. And so what's that one yep. other person that you could be supporting, helping, making it's so true. something it's better? So true. It's so true. You know, I, I thought about it very early in, the, in this crisis. You know, I thought about I had this moment where I, I kind of had a moment of realization. Oh, my God. Think about those poor people who are out there by themselves, you know, out there, you know, sheltered at home alone. And, you know, some of them are perfectly happy, but there's a percentage of those that are really lonely. And so I thought, God, you know, you should just pick up the phone and call people. Not out of pity, but out of care, you know, that, that you do care, you know. So I just went through my, uh, I went through my contact list and just looked for people I thought might be alone. You know, I call, and I called a few and I'm still doing it. And if everybody did that, probably there'd be a lot fewer people feeling like totally alone, you know? I want to take that and pull that forward because anybody who's listening, please take on that challenge of picking up the phone and calling not one, but two people that you haven't talked to, uh, two people who might be needing a phone call and needing to connect. And um, that's certainly something I'm going to do right after we get off. Um, I'm just, this has been a warming, thoughtful, fun interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time to, to discuss and chat and share your, share your journey. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's really been fun. You're a really interesting guy. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to hearing your future podcast. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you like this episode, leave us a review. And as always, drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com.